Talent is universal, but opportunity is not. So whereas Photostar creates impact on the level of the student, the classroom, the school, the community, Syzygy then aligns that community need with government initiative and business interest. So to me, it's part of one extensive theory of change around alignment and about identifying where is there excess capacity? Where could that meet excess demand? And so we shared a philosophy and an outlook on the world. And she loved that Photostart brought together a number of different stakeholders across brands, across community-based organizations and so forth. This week's guest is native New Yorker, Abby Lehman, a natural storyteller, connector and social entrepreneur working at the intersection of community, government and business. As a fourth-generation New Yorker from a family of East European migrants, Abby is living evidence of the value and impact that immigration can have on a city and a nation's success. Abby explains how her social impact NGO, Photostart, uses photography as a gateway for underprivileged youth in Kenya, South Africa, Uganda, and also in the United States to open up educational, vocational, and professional pathways as a way to equip them with the problem-solving entrepreneurial and financial skills necessary to create transformative economic opportunities for them as individuals and for their families and their communities. Abby and I then go on to discuss the transformative impact of our new rural and urban regeneration innovation program, Syzygy Cities, that's S-Y-Z-Y-G-Y, which aligns community needs with government initiatives and business interests to stimulate economic and social development. Abby breaks down her current live initiative, Invest Southwest, with the City of Chicago and national and local commercial partners and local NGOs to provide the infrastructure, services and solutions to create more economically and socially resilient communities. Abby really is an inspirational female leader. She is a driving force for positive socio-economic change, forged through her clarity of strategic thought, collaborative spirit and her forceful, eloquent voice. So I hope you feel uplifted by the power and the passion of Abby Lehman. Abby, welcome to the Impossible Network podcast. Thank you so much. Such an honor to be here with you. And I'm just going to timestamp this. This is my last podcast interview for the time being in mm. Neuhaus, New York. Mm, what an honor. And a face-to-face. Yeah. Um, back after the sort of year of Zoom interviews. So it's really nice to be sitting here in this room to hear your story. So before we talk about the amazing work you're doing in both philanthropy and also in terms of, I suppose you maybe call it urban regeneration. I'd love you to contextualize that and your worldview and the impact on your worldview of your upbringing, the impact of your parents and your education. Sure. Absolutely. Happy to. So I would say that I benefited from a really interesting mix of influences throughout my life. I'm a very proud fourth generation New Yorker, which I think has really informed a lot of my sensibility and my worldview, this is really a global village. And I think that exposure to so many different cultures, in addition to coming from a family of travelers, has really informed who I am, what I care about, how I see the world and what matters to me. So my ancestors were recruited to come work here as cheap labor in the tr- true American tradition. From where? From Eastern Europe. Okay. Uh, so we're Ashkenazi Jewish on both sides of my family. So my family has worked in every aspect of the garment industry. And when I started my career, I was doing research in digital luxury brands and their online distribution. For the family? No, no, no. So just in uh, for a think tank turned startup business intelligence firm called L2. Scott Galleries. Yes. Yeah, that's where I first worked. I did. Wow, that must have been an experience. It really was. It was so formative for how I saw the world, but also really the importance of storytelling. 
and myth-making and telling a compelling story about a good, a product, or a service and how much we seek self-expressive benefit in the services and products that we consume. So that, I would say, was the ultimate abstraction. Like my family had worked in all aspects of this industry and then my parents met in law school and my mom had attended Cornell ILR, which was the state grant part of the school, where she studied industrial labor relations. So I was really sensitized to the future of work and labor rights. And I'm the great granddaughter of people that, you know, were singing union songs as they took their kids to summer camp. So I've been really immersed in that world. At the same time, my father was a Wall Street executive and very, very passionate capitalist, but also a very um, passionate philanthropist. So these different influences about, I suppose, the power of markets, the stories about how far your talent and hard work could take you, but also recognizing that these opportunities were clearly not available all over the world. And the operating thesis of the nonprofit that I co-founded with my older brother, uh, who is also a photographer and an attorney, is that talent is universal, but opportunity is not. And we've been so immensely blessed, there's really no other word, with enormous experiential education opportunities. We, Everyone in my family attended a public school, but I attended a really fascinating union-free high school. Mm -hmm. So if you can imagine, even, yeah. no, so this was on the North Shore of Long Island, a place called Jericho High School. It's consistently ranked very highly among public high schools in the country because they can spend so much per capita on students and give their students access to enormous opportunities to travel, to learn, to participate in experiential learning. And I also got to work in media production while I was still in middle school and high school. Wow. And I helped co-found our school news station. I was very passionate about telling stories. And I just knew the fact that I was in middle school learning how to edit on, you know, top of the line software. This was not normal. This was not typical. And I recognized I had enormous privileges and I didn't know it at the time. I thought I was going to go into media, like broadcast journalism or maybe documentarian work. And... I just knew I wanted to tell important stories. I wanted to make a positive difference. And I wanted to use my skills, resources, and network. Had all the makings of what would become Photostart, but I just couldn't see it at the time. And then the last thing I'll share about my family and upbringing, I was given the enormous opportunity to travel the world with my grandparents, who started with absolutely less than nothing here in New York during the Depression. They Both families came from extreme poverty. This is my mother's parents, my father's family as well. But I grew very close with my mother's parents who themselves didn't start traveling until 25 years after they first married. But once they started, they never stopped. Wow. And the pandemic was the first time in 50 years that they were home for their anniversary. And they've been to more than 120 countries around the That's world. Incredible. And this is, you know, Sally and Maurice right. from Coney Island, Brooklyn, Brighton Beach. They would want me to make the <laughs> distinction. And I'm still immensely close with them. They're in their mid-90s. And they've also really shaped my life. And I've been able to travel the world with them and then with my mother and stepfather, wow. too. Wow, what a privilege. Enormous. Just as you were talking about Garment District. Yeah. Um, one of the, I had my New York bucket list to do before I left. And I went to the Tenement Museum mm. in the Lower East Side. Mm -hmm. And we were shown around this tenement, which they tell, is storytelling. So they bring to life the individuals who lived in that building, who lived in that apartment. And from a woman's perspective, it was a woman whose husband had a garment, oh, mini garment factory mm -hmm. in their tiny little apartment. Wow. And people would come in every day through the kitchen, one bedroom for the two kids and her and the husband. 
And this is 1901 on Ludlow Street. And it's just astounding when you see the conditions people lived in. These immigrants coming in and yet taking the opportunity to build a life, mm. a career, family, a community, neighbourhoods around from nothing. And the hard work and the effort. And you see how you th just think back in the cold and the heat and the humidity that is New York. Mm. So people like your grandparents must have gone through something very similar. And it is just... The, you're humbled by it. Absolutely. I think that's why I identify so strongly as a New Yorker, because to be an American is to descend from pioneers. You know, someone in your family took a chance to come from somewhere else, perhaps unless you're, you know, Native American, Indigenous, First Nation and so forth. But any of us who have relatives or ancestors that came from elsewhere, they had to be innovators. They had to be brave. They had to be pioneering and they had to be immensely resilient. And New York City is no walk in the park. Oh, the fortitude and just the, yeah, as you say, the resilience to get through and survive. And they, it was at that time the most densely packed neighborhood on earth. Mm. And it's incredible when you just think to what that must have been like. Uh, you know, you, you raised such a fascinating point. I know we'll get to it in a moment or two, but the work we do in Nairobi, in Kenya, we work in some communities where 60% of the population, 6-0, lives on 6% of the land. Those are the communities that we work in where resources are immensely scarce, where young people, students have to choose between going to school or paying medical bills or their family being able to keep heat or electricity on. So there's a visceral sense of history, I suppose, or a felt sense and an empathy for what that must be like. Clearly, these are very different circumstances. But when I think about people who are striving to make a better future for their children and their children's children and undergoing enormous hardship mm. to make it possible, I really feel for that. That's so integral to my family's story, too. I mean, it's not common to hear a story like yours of someone that has benefited from the, the hard work, the dedication, the sacrifices of previous generations. And I acknowledge it. But you've actually, with your brother, gone further and done something about that gratitude and turned that gratitude into service. What is it that you think, what instilled in you that, that will or that impetus to do something rather than just, because so many of us just think, well, I think that's an important cause, I'll give, whether it's through tithing or whatever. But you're actually doing it. You're taking action. You've created an NGO. What, what drove you to it? Yeah, that's a very elegant transition. I would say it's a number of factors. Again, I mentioned privilege, but I attended Princeton University and through my connections, I was able to uh, develop a side hustle of educational consulting, tutoring, admissions work. And I recognized that my access, my privilege, my education, my network, my experiences, all of that could be leveraged into something. And the relationships that I've built in that world have a, given me sort of the financial freedom at different points in my career to pursue something like this. And I don't make light of that. I recognize, as I've said many times over already in this brief interview, I recognize my enormous privilege and I recognized to do nothing with it, especially at such a time in our, I think our, again, not to sound too highfalutin, but in this time of our evolution at this time, this very important moment of human history, yeah. human experience. We're really on the brink of so many exponential challenges, highly complex. I think so many issues we face as a globe, they are so much bigger than any one of us. And 
even if I said, oh, I want to make a difference, I have enough awareness and humility to know I couldn't do it alone. And if I wasn't surrounded by amazing collaborators and other people that believed in us and wanted to support the work we were up to, I don't think any of this would be possible. So as I said, the financial freedom that came from being able to charge a premium for some of my services gave me more leverage on my time and the ability to focus on the things that really mattered the most to me and that I thought could make a real difference in the world. So, you know, it was our work that inspired some of our initial supporters to really get behind us. And that gave us a whole new level of freedom and ability to make an impact around the world. You know, during the pandemic, we, uh, so before we were operating in person on the ground, and that's very, very costly and very capital intensive. In the pandemic, though, we moved everything online. We started teaching hybrid, and that let us move from two markets to 10. And that level of traction, I think, beget even more success. And so if there's anything I could offer to others, um, I was going to say, try to prove to people that you can have an impact and then try to replicate it. But these conditions, I think, are very difficult to replicate. But again, if I could offer anything, I would say, how can you make this work for you? All your challenges, how can you make them work for you? And that's what we did. For people that aren't aware of the NGO, describe exactly what Photostart does. Absolutely. <laughs> it's pretty obvious in the name, but I think you've expanded beyond photography. Of course. Yeah. The typical way I describe it at 30,000 feet is we teach life, leadership, and mentorship skills to young people by teaching them the art and business of photography. Why photography? As opposed to a number of other art forms, you know, so like other arts, it allows a person to express themselves, to process challenging experiences and turn it into something beautiful. It also encourages you to seek out beauty or interest in your surrounding environment. And for many people, they may not be trained to initially look for beauty and interest around them all the time. Photography really changes how you see the world, even without a camera. And in addition, because we focus on digital photography, our students will be learned in all the different elements that photography involves, including using editing software and platforms, using the lexicon of a number of different industries today. So the idea is that we can connect our students to different educational, vocational, or professional pathways through the exposure that they gain in our program, which, you know, we integrate STEAM, STEM, mm -hmm. plus arts concepts, digital skills. In addition, you know, our students learn to create, produce, distribute, and commercialize their work. So they're learning creative problem solving, entrepreneurial skills, how to turn a venture that they have into something that can generate ideally financial abundance for them, but at the very least, perhaps some more financial literacy, stewardship, and a sense of being a role model and contributing to their own well-being and that of their family and their community. That's brilliant. So have you seen, and do you, well, I mean, every NGO has a theory of change. Do you, have you been tracking the impact you've had on people's lives? Absolutely. I've been so immensely humbled. So besides having fairly robust evaluation metrics, you know, we track how many students begin with us, how many graduate. We work in a number of communities around the world where you know, attrition rate students who stop matriculating is very, very high. So one of the things our partner programs have done, we work with youth serving community uh, organizations and schools. What they've often elected to do is make attendance mandatory in order to participate in our programs. And they've seen mm -hmm. very strong in improvement in attendance, 
um, and engagement and positive behaviors socially and academically. Even parents have said these are different children, which is very, very validating. So that's anecdotal. But we do track, of course, like how many students are matriculating and completing our programming, what skills they acquire, their levels of confidence. But I would say that anecdotally, some of the things I'm most proud of, our oldest programs in Kenya, we're on our third generation of students now, our programming partners on the ground, they've adopted our programming and adapted it to their needs, which is everything we've dreamed of. So they identified, we have a trash problem in this community and students of ours who are former gang members teamed up with the local police to do a station cleanup and a community trash cleanup. Wow. And our students documented it and the police were so impressed. They also said, we want to have our own photography program. We have stories we want to share. We can't believe they have skills. But more than anything... They're body cams. Yes. Well, that's a whole other thing. But I think what's so gratifying and so humbling and makes me so proud is that our students really are being the light. That's our motto. Uh Be the light. Be a role model. Stand for something bigger than yourself and show other people the way. And that's what our students have done and continue to do. And so now they've exchanged phone numbers. They've become friends. Think about what that could do for community relations around the world in other communities that use a photo documentary program to track um issues in their own communities, to raise awareness, or to bring the community together in new ways, to relate in new ways that weren't previously possible. I mean, that just, it makes my heart so happy. Yeah. As you were talking, I'm thinking about, obviously, you have volunteers on the ground Mm -hmm. that coach and who have got photography skills or editing skills. I don't think we're ever going to go back purely to physical, whether it be teaching, meetings, whatever. We're going to be in this sort of this hybrid experience. Have you thought about getting acclaimed photographers or teachers to actually volunteer their time to actually pass on their knowledge as well? Because you think about things like Masterclass and what they've done, that you could see you're going from, you've got this amazing grassroots and probably some immense talent will emerge out of the work you're doing. And I've got, you know, I've got this friend who teaches photography at Parsons. Mm. And I think about him with his students that are all paying however many thousands. Mm -hmm to attend Parsons from privileged backgrounds, you know, those people and, you know, who've got amazing and now got the skills to teach over Zoom, Mm -hmm. what they could do Mm -hmm. if you could sort of of galvanize interests across that sort of that community of teachers. I have it for kids in inner cities in the US. Absolutely. So we're exploring some different revenue generation strategies right now. So you're catching me and and our team at an interesting moment of inflection because Uh To date, we've only been working with community-based organizations, a few schools here and there, but mostly serving special populations. As I mentioned, we serve not only former gang members, or we like to say youth who have wandered off the path, and we just guide them gently back on towards legitimate and dignified employment. But we also work with a number of students who have special needs or complex needs, so intellectual and physical disability, or, you know, we're talking to some programs with populations who have experienced heavy trauma in the past. And so there are specialty skills that we also like to select for. But that said, I've been immensely overwhelmed by the generosity and spirit of photographers and people uh, who are visual storytellers across a number of mediums who have wanted to volunteer their time and energy and their skills and resources to work with students. So we certainly welcome people, especially if they want to film a masterclass or something, and then we can yeah. share that with our students. So if anyone has any interest, please feel free to reach out. Yeah. Well, We'd love to chat with you. A little network of photographers, I know. Absolutely. We, we definitely already have a number of people in our community who 
So what I've developed with our team is more of an ecosystem model. So we have a place for staff photographers. We call them our program trainers and coordinators. So they handle the admin logistics and much of the teaching. We also have absolutely a place for people who want to be champions or mentors who want to maybe volunteer maybe an hour a month, or I can work certainly custom with different people based on an affinity area or real passion area of theirs to match them with a community and a program that would really speak to their heart. But yeah, we definitely are always inviting people to help us film more of our curriculum and make it accessible. So you made the point that we're probably not going back to an Uh in-person only world. For most of our programming partners on the ground, especially across um, East Africa, almost all of our students have to come in person and attend a center. They just don't have the technology yeah, and broadband and so forth. So overseas, it's definitely hybrid. But across the U.S., we have huge opportunities to work with students in a number of different time zones in a number of different communities. But the thing that gets me very energized is putting all of our global students in dialogue with one another and sharing their work and being part of global exhibitions together. Yeah. I don't know if you have you been down to Forteville down on yeah. Brooklyn. Yeah. We actually one of our great achievements, a student of ours, Sarah Sunday Moses, shout out to Sarah. She's a superstar. She graduated our programming in Nairobi, Kenya from one of our partners called Akili Dada, which works to train the voice of the next generation of women who will be at the table making decisions that impact the, the continent. I love their mission. So she came in as a leader. I want to give her full credit. She's also a refugee who's living in Nairobi, and she just demonstrated such leadership in our program. So she took to the lessons. We entered her into a New York Times photo project called This Is 18, uh-huh. which then really took off. She was able to use her earnings to pay for school supplies and to help cover her her living expenses. She was supporting herself with photography during her gap year. She then came back to help mentor and teach other students. Her work with This Is 18 not only led to an international commission, she also, her work was shown in Photoville and then later was added to the New York Times This Is 18 photo book, which is a New York Times bestseller in its category on Amazon. So she gets, you know, royalties and recognition. We were able to help her elevate her profile and support herself as a visual storyteller, as a documentarian. And she's a role model still to all of our students. But especially in gratifying knowing that that's the impact, even if that's one story. I mean, we hope to have so many Sarahs, but yeah, I mean, it. I get like emotional Uh thinking about these individual stories, but we have that, you know, we have. um, I'll share this one quickly because I know you're also very sporty. (laughs) I think of you as a (laughs) really. Yeah, I think of you as a really healthy, athletic person. One of our students, Markson in Nairobi. He was asked to help document a, a local soccer match, a uh, football match. And um, the other team was so impressed with what he was doing. They asked him if he would photograph them as well and if he would come back and photograph their season and if they could all get player shots from him. So he was able to su- not support himself, I shouldn't say that, but earn a little bit of extra income, practice and leverage his skills, set an example for all of our other students and get everyone excited. Like, I mean, we live for that kind of stuff. We live for those stories. Okay, maybe that's a, a good point to transition. I mean, you've been talking about the transformative impact on individuals and their their lives and the people around them. Yeah. But you've also been doing work beyond Photostart with another initiative called Syzygy. Mm-hmm. And that's been very much focused on, let's say, inner city urban regeneration, economic regeneration. I'd love you to put that in context as well and it, and then we can get into the specifics of where you are with it and where you see it going in the future 
and it, the imperative for the initiatives like that in today's world. Absolutely. I'll try to hit all those yeah. notes because I think you set it up really nicely. So while I had already been focused on Photo Start and working on raising funds, developing partnerships, elevating our profile, I had the great fortune to meet someone who's become a very dear friend and a collaborator. Uh, her name is Rachel, and she told me about this vision she had. She shared this word with me, syzygy, which I was familiar with. I'd actually heard of it before, but had a lot of special resonance for her. It's the only word in the English language that has three whys, which speaks to a shared philosophy we have of continuing to ask why and not accepting anything as inevitable, immutable, or biological. Things were constructed, which means we can reconstruct them. We shared that philosophy. And um, it also refers to balance in a gravitational system between three celestial bodies. But instead of the sun, moon, and earth, we use it to refer to community, government, and business. Talent is universal, but opportunity is not. So whereas PhotoStar creates impact on the level of the student, the classroom, the school, the community, Syzygy then aligns that community need with government initiative and business interest. So to me, it's part of one extensive theory of change around alignment and about identifying where is there excess capacity? Where could that meet excess demand? And so we shared a philosophy and an outlook on the world, and she loved that PhotoStart brought together a number of different stakeholders across brands, across community-based organizations, and so forth. So she liked that we were working to transform what she described as talent deserts. Mm-hmm. I wouldn't have used that phrase, but it really spoke to me that, oh, well, I'm using development language. She's using that of a brand marketer. We're speaking the same language, but we're using different terminology. And I think that speaks to the challenges that we seek to solve with Syzygy Cities, which is how do you align different sectors that operate by different incentive structures that use different language that for intents and purposes could be aligned, but just aren't. We lack the will and sometimes perhaps maybe the vision. And that's what we wanted to bring. So we started with rural economic development, actually. I saw a place for us to have PhotoStart operate as an implementing partner. So we were just operating on a different scale. And so we started with rural economic development, working on a project in New England initially, a no-bid contract, which we were starting as um, up-and-comers and just eager learners. We were working under the aegis of some very experienced developers who had done economic and social development. What was her background? Yeah, so yeah. I'm happy to get into it. So when I met Rachel, she was doing global sales and partnerships at TED, which to me was like the mothership. <laughs> so I was just overjoyed to connect with her and learn about how she started working there, what it was like. And she likes to say, and I, I'm summarizing here, but you can only go to so many conferences about ideas worth spreading before you start thinking about actions worth taking. And you can only be immersed in this world and you hear about this amazing world-changing people and events and initiatives. And I think with all that inspiration, we both felt we wanted to do something with it. So we decided to... funny because before the whole pandemic, I interviewed uh, the writer, a co-author of New Power, Jeremy Hyman's amazingly successful young entrepreneurial Australian based over here with an agency called Purpose. And um, when I read New Power, there was a line in it where he said, Ted's about ideas worth sharing. But really, we need to be, as a world, focus on the problems worth solving. Mm. And I started to think about that and think, before the pandemic, I need to take a lot of the guests I've interviewed and start to create the network of them working together, committing to collaborate 
on the big problems worth solving. And it's interesting you talk about what she said as ideas worth sharing and it needs to be actions that need taking. taking. And I think that is definitely a sense that a lot of people have. There's, the, the talking's over. Isn't, time's running out. Mm. We've got to take actions, whether individually or collectively or else, you know, existentially, we are in trouble. I so, couldn't yeah. agree more. And, and I think it does. And it does start. I mean, people often feel that there's not a lot they can do. They expect government to act. But it's really individuals, communities, neighborhoods and cities that really can enact mm. real change faster than central government. Absolutely. And I think it's worth looking at a number of mayor's initiatives mm-hmm. across the globe to see. I mean, especially I mentioned, you know, I'm a very proud fourth generation New Yorker. In a lot of ways, I think we've seen in this country as we've encountered so much strife politically, socially, and so forth, that we've seen a lot of local consciousness arise where people have a sense that I may have different values than people in the community over, but who do I share a sensibility with and how can we collaborate? How can we team up? How can we amplify each other's impact? And we've seen that with people that we've collaborated with across the country who have said, you know, we may have different values or beliefs, but what are the things that unite us and how can we redouble our efforts? How can we build off what one another has done? Why should we be operating in a silo when we know these challenges are so global and face us, whether it's as a species, whether it's like COVID or climate change and crisis? I think that the challenges we face can be so overwhelming and it can be very understandable to shut down. But what I've tried to do is channel a lot of the anxiety I've felt in the past number of years into action. And I think that's probably one of the most therapeutic things you can do. Of course, right action. Of course, you know, you want to be thoughtful and mindful and aware. But at the same time, I think that's been my answer to a lot of the just pervasive anxiety of the last number of years. So where are you right now with Suzuki? Yes. So we're very, very excited to share with your community um, that you've built that we just won a very exciting contract with the city of Chicago. So I mentioned we started in rural economic development and actually COVID has sort of laid bare some of the long existing challenges economically across this country that differ by region. But there was a huge opportunity in the city of Chicago. There was $750 million that was put up for RFP across a number of different communities, about 12 communities across Chicago. And it's this initiative called Invest Southwest, which plays on the fame and renown of the Austin-based festival. But the idea was to bring in new ideas and innovation from across the U.S. and use that to help uh, economically revitalize, but also generate intergenerational wealth that had been so displaced and, and I suppose you can say denied many of the residents of South and West sides of the city. As a student of sociology myself, when the American sociologist used the word ghetto to describe communities, specifically in Chicago, they were purposely going out of their way to evoke the racism, involuntariness, and exploitation of European ghettos. They wanted to communicate that in this instance. And that's a whole other conversation, yeah, but just be a to very interesting get, conversation. Yes. Yeah. But if you look at housing covenants and redlining and a lot of practices where people live has so many knock on effects of where you send your children to school, what public transport is available to you, what jobs you can hold, public safety, property values, intergenerational wealth, yeah, food, food. Absolutely. Yeah. We are working in communities where right now um, 
there's significant retail drainage, which means there's money in the community to be spent, but they live in a food desert or a grocery desert. And so people are forced to travel further and, you know, generate, I'm sorry, use more resources to simply meet their basic needs, whether that's buying groceries or access gas and other services. So we sought to, I don't want to say solve, but begin to address some of these challenges by bringing in national and local partnerships, by working with the government with tax incentives and structures that benefit businesses and finding those organizations and businesses that want to invest in the communities that they they serve and that they live and work in. So how do you, I mean, it's a, a monumental task to try and create urban regeneration. I mean, even if you, you just think about it from a supply chain standpoint and just food insecurity in, in terms of getting more naturally locally grown foods to schools is one thing. In itself, it's a massive action. How do you prioritize the across the spectrum of things you could do what needs to be done first that's a really excellent excellent question i think it always invites a question of scale what can you actually manage at scale i think obviously there's cost considerations but you try to think which investments will have the greatest knock-on effects which will be the ones that support the cascade of value creation yeah so we decided, you know, typically, again, to borrow Rachel's language, she's really great with these little quips, but the typical real estate developer, when they're trying to generate value in a community, will build pretty buildings and hope rich people move in. We decided, what if we tried to create rich people and have them create more beautiful buildings? So instead of investing in an expensive high-rise building and hoping that wealthier people move into a community, which also... Gen, like gentrifies it and then displaces the original community, we said we want to take a completely different tack. We want to invest in health, human services, legal and financial counseling, small business mentorship, small business loans. How can we invest in people who are working to improve their own circumstances so that they can then create this regenerative cycle of value creation for themselves, their families, their communities? So it's actually not too dissimilar from PhotoStart. Yeah. We invest in the human capital but also not ignore that environment and setting matter so much to whether or not we can succeed and how quickly. Huh. So we want to optimize the conditions. We want to make the resources available to the communities. We also, by the way, um, the centerpiece of this project in Chicago, we're also in talks for other RFQs in other communities, including Bronzeville, which is a really well-known up-and-coming yeah. area in Chicago. So they loved a couple of our RFPs and invited us to work on a location that was not previously available, but they wanted to work with us and our team, seeing the value that we could bring. So we identified, of course, uh, part of the RFP, and I really have to give credit to the city of Chicago and the teams that they worked with, the community-based analysis that they did, the research and surveys, because they identified, you know, Chicago has a protected gay community called Boys Town. They also have a Chinatown, but they didn't necessarily have recognition for the distinct contribution of African-American culture in Chicago. And so that was a big part of a number of the RFPs was really centering African-American voices, culture, music, art, and so forth. So that was pretty central to how we thought about value creation for this community. Also, some really outsized talent has come from this area. And so we wanted to think about what are ways that young people could not only express themselves, have a really valuable third place that isn't school or home to come to, but also to meet with their friends, to create art, to learn new skills, to develop a trade. So we centered this entrepreneurial center 
that is going to offer skill development, community engagement, small business classes, mentorship, a drop shipping center for entrepreneurs of different sorts of ventures. So we tried to think if you were starting a small venture, you were trying to raise a family and cultivate young people who could be really positive change makers, what would you want there to support them and their parents and their grandparents and their community? So we couldn't overlook a mental health care facility with addiction treatment. That's a huge deal across the country. But this community also indicated this would have high or extremely beneficial uh, contribution to everyone in the community, not just the people directly impacted, but everyone. So we try to think about it holistically. Yeah, it's it's a critical part of any regeneration of any community, certainly coming out of the pandemic. I mean, I talked about it before that I've been working... I'm with another guest on the podcast for Vanessa Barboni Halleck on a thing focused just on the West Village and looking at called Back the Neighborhood and interviewing residents, retailers and restaurateurs and understanding from them just although we're come obviously coming out of it, things are feeling they're back to normal in New York to a degree. The restaurant workers and the delivery people during the pandemic, the stresses they were under, because they were essentially frontline workers as well. And there was no mental health support for those people. Mm. And, you know, aside from the economic impact, so there's, there's this unseen side of life that needs to be addressed, that isn't being acknowledged, I think, by many city councils or city authorities. Mm. So it falls on organizations like yourself to identify these needs and then bring together, as you say, the different organizations to create these services that are much needed and in demand. You raise such... An excellent point. And again, I mentioned sort of the city model Mm -hmm. before. I just saw that New York is introducing new protections for a number of workers that are considered essential and frontline workers like delivery men who very often are immigrants, may or may not have English language skills, are often deprived the opportunity of using restrooms, Mm -hmm. are disproportionately targeted for not just petty crime, but violent crime as well, because they're seen... The bridge between the Bronx and and Manhattan. Mm. They have to go across in convoys to protect themselves. Oh, my goodness. Yes, I've heard also that they're implementing new protections for delivery people who want to limit which boroughs or bridges are having to take tunnels and so forth. Yeah, it's it's an unseen, invisible workforce to an extent. And, you know, you could say, oh, this is the extension of a grand tradition of exploiting the newest crop of workers that come through. But given the incredible threats, biological, physical, emotional, mental, and then a number of others. And then frankly, just how taxing it is getting around New York City, but then doing so on a bicycle. Yeah, I mean, these are some of our unsung heroes, clearly, and people that allow the city to keep operating. I mean, think about small business owners running restaurants who we all heartily want to support. You know, many of them are relying upon this workforce that's invisible, that doesn't necessarily have the same protections. Or awareness, And as I mentioned, my upbringing and my family's story makes me sensitized to the well-being of people upon whom we all rely, but we often don't see or connect with. So, yeah, I've thought quite a bit about that. And I don't know that our solutions are always the most humane. You know, I've heard of cities that want to implement full drone systems and just have all deliveries done via drones. But think about the displacement of the humans and the people I mean, it's who may bigger, not have skills. Yeah, there's a bigger challenge down the road when we start to talk about the, sort of the replacement of um, humans with AI and through machine learning. Absolutely. And again, that's another podcast in its own right. Definitely. But to your question about like how can you identify those interventions that will be the most beneficial yeah. or have 
the widest impact or the most sustainable impact, that's that's the million dollar question, the billion dollar question, really, because how many well-considered, well-intended interventions have created unintended externalities and impact and try to be really thoughtful because very often, you know, we're talking about communities that have been denied voice and presence and the ability to contribute or to be part of generating the solutions. So we're trying our very best to integrate as many community voices, do our own interviews, work extensively with local community-based organizations and then other national ones in addition to national brands and local community businesses. So it's really trying to manage on multiple levels at once. It takes enormous organization, communication, and management skills. I have to say it's it's a lot to manage, but I can't think of anything more meaningful. Mm-hmm. No, I think it's wonderful. If people want to follow and find out more about what you're doing with Syzygy, where do they go? Absolutely. So we have an Instagram account at Syzygy Cities. We also have a website, syzygycities.com. Let me spell that for you. I'll put it in the show. Oh, notes. excellent. Yeah. Excellent. So yeah, we um, you can definitely find us on our website. We also are working, I really have to give a ton of credit to our coalition of partners. We're part of the 548 Coalition. Um, all of these businesses that we work with, the architects, the designers, the real estate developers, everybody, it's a minority or women-owned enterprise, every single one of them. And that has been really central to Chicago's plan for its future, is investing in those groups and voices and organizations that have been historically less heard from or less represented. But I really want to invite anyone to think about what are ways that you can make a difference in your own community and think about maybe what are the unique skills, talents, resources you have and how you can make a contribution. Well, it's really exciting. And once you achieve success, as I'm sure you will, you'll be able to then replicate and scale it in other cities. That's the idea. I think the long-term vision, we have a couple of ideas, but one would be to create some sort of platform where people can volunteer their skills or say, my local business would love to be involved, and that you could source a number of different RFPs or local initiatives, because there's such a hunger. I mean, people... When I share what I do, I have a number of classmates who've gone into a number of more traditional fields. And one of the first things they'll say is that sounds so meaningful. Yeah. That sounds so purposeful. And that tells me that so many people feel starved for that in their own lives or they want to create more of it at the very least for themselves. And, you know, we didn't see the opportunity. We created it. We have, you know, as I said, we're part of a large coalition. We have a team of at least five of us in the core, but then a much larger extended team that we activate for various projects. So if you have an idea or a venture or some way that you want to contribute, please don't hesitate to reach out. We'd love to learn what you're up to and see how we can create shared value. This is a team sport more than anything. We'll put all your details in the show notes. Definitely. Um, your partner, one from Ted. Uh, yeah, yeah, Rachel. Mm-hmm. Rachel, the only thing that I, that jarred with me when you said what you were doing with photo starters, dealing with a talent desert. I don't think it's talent desert. I think the talent's there. Mm-hmm. It's just not utilized. I could so agree. Yeah, so that's the only thing. So maybe... I might be mischaracterizing <laughs> it. That's the term she used. But the idea generally being that we have people who are ready and eager to learn. They may not yeah. always have access and opportunity. I agree. I, I know that innate talent is there. Again, that's our thesis. Talent is universal. Opportunity is not. That's it. Yeah. But also access to continued cultivation, to the resources and equipment. That may be lacking, and that's exactly what we try to offer with PhotoStart. Yeah, that's really exciting. Can we get to the quick fire question? Absolutely. Okay. What principles do you stand by? Mm. It's going to sound trite, but you know, I've, even in professional settings, I really hope that's not seen as naive or unprofessional. But really, what would love have us do? What would be in the greatest and highest good of all people involved? And that's really how 
I try to make choices. Okay, that's a good answer. What hard choices have you had to make that might have been tough at the time, but did turn out to be the right decision? Mm. I think leaving my corporate job and a lot of the security, I've been working as a social entrepreneur, which I can tell you has its immense challenges. But yeah, I can't imagine having done it any other way. I had a little bit more stability than most that I'd already been building a side hustle and had been building a client base and establishing a record of success. So I took maybe a more structured path. But I would say that if you have a venture that you believe in heart and soul and you've put in the hard work and you have traction to show for it, I think you owe it to yourself to take a chance and see what you can do with it. Question I'm supposed to ask you before that. Oh, did, sure. Um, where did serendipity play a part in either Photo Start or with um, Susji? Beautiful question. So many different ways. Oh my goodness. But two come to mind immediately. So when I was about to take my corporate media job, I also got introduced to a client that ended up being a very significant supporter, but I didn't know it at the time. And I was deciding, do I go one path or the other? And it was a teacher, mentor, friend of mine who said, why do you have to choose? Why not do both? That did not occur to me. I mean, I will say I was burning the candle at both ends. However, that was absolute serendipity. That was a gift from on high, truly, because doing both at the same time allowed me to generate a track record of success at work and develop some more professional skills and exposure while also cultivating one of the most significant relationships in my life with this family. And to this day, my my student has become a mentee and, and a friend and I'm invested in their growth and development and still very, very connected to the family and only want to see him succeed. And the other example that comes to mind that was truly serendipity was I had a conflicting assignment the night I met Rachel. We met at a a shared event and I was conflicted about going because I thought it might be, I don't know, irresponsible or that I should really put in the hard work, but something was just calling me forth to the event. And I am so glad I went because we met, we hit it off, we shared such a a number of different influences and philosophies, and it was a very generative relationship. It still is, you know, friendship and and collaboration. And through her, I've met extraordinary people that have become dear friends, colleagues, collaborators, and it opened up a whole world, including I eventually got introduced to the Summit Network, which is where I met you. Yeah, and exactly. Summit has been also transformative. Yeah. Exactly. So, so many good things in my life come from just that one choice to go to that event and also to sit next to the loud brunette in the bright red jacket and it's all yeah it all's from there Wonderful. from that moment brilliant beautiful where do you go to discover new ideas Ooh, lovely question i've always been an art nerd i've always loved museums my family likes to joke like they want to be knee deep in a fish market in southeast asia and say isn't this wonderful they want to be interacting with the people in the markets i love that too but you can drop me in any museum anywhere in the world and the immersive learning experience, the chance to experience art, be given context and understanding, and then go on and do additional research. That always inspires me. And I love seeing how other creators experience the world, how they envision the world, and how they portray it to others. And then that you as a viewer, a recipient of that, that you bring your own story and narrative. It's such, it's a dialogue to me. And I find also nature always, especially as a New Yorker, I try to escape to nature whenever I can. Those are both really generative for me. Okay. Who or what has made you reevaluate yourself? Oh, great question. Hmm. You know, I think so, every experience, I think if you're open-minded, open-hearted, I 
try to allow every experience to change me and think, what could I not see before? How might I see this differently? How might this be inviting me to see myself or some aspect of myself differently? So that might be a little generic, but... um, That's fine. Yeah. No, I I can think of maybe some ex- like specific instances, but I think if you're living artistically, if you're living as someone who takes inspiration and lets the motivation move them to action or to some new state, I think that allowing yourself to remain open to those transformative experiences. Then again, I'm also fortunate to live in New York City. Yeah. Right. We are inundated with extraordinary influences all around. I would say the communities I'm a part of have changed me quite a bit. Some of my critics, for sure, throughout my life or, or, you know, challengers, opponents. I think those have been some of the most soul-searching moments to ask myself, am I coming from a place of love? Am I coming from a place of honesty? Am I seeking validation or acceptance? Am I doing this for intrinsically motivated reasons? I don't always love it, but I always know that I'm better for having reflected on those moments. What is the one problem worth solving? Ooh, self-regard, I think, and self-leadership. I think everybody who seeks to make a difference in the world, this is a very humbling lesson about leadership that I'm learning and learning all, all the time, is about can you lead yourself first and foremost? And I was recently introduced to the concept, though there are people who are trying to live at a level five, but haven't mastered level one. And so if you're trying to do really big things, but you haven't mastered yourself, your sleep schedule, your diet, your exercise, your relationships, how you care for yourself and the people around you, it's going to be really difficult to sustain that impact. And given the work that I do, that's been a humbling lesson and one that I learn over and over all the time. So I think anybody who wants to influence another person, I think it behooves you to ask yourself, how can I influence and lead myself first? And then from that place, inspire others to make that change for themselves too. Great answer. No one else, no one's ever said that in any interview. Cool. That's cool. (laughs) I hope it serves someone. Yeah, I like it. Impossible question. Um, Someone about to go to study, graduate, it's got dream, ambition, Mm. and has been told, forget it. It's Mm. impossible. What would your advice be? Mm. Well, I think definitely figure out who's been telling you it's impossible and why and what's their, perhaps not motivation, but their experience. I think it's the same with seeking advice from people. I much prefer to hear how people made their choices for their own lives and then extrapolate and apply that to my own life. I think even the most well-intended, most competent mentors and advisors, um, they have a limited perspective. And even if they have seen many a person go before you, they may or may not know your exact composition of experiences and drive and motivation and resources. And more importantly, your resilience, your adaptability. An idea I really embrace is anti-fragility. How can you use every challenge to make you stronger, smarter, more adaptable, more resilient? So if someone tells you don't go for it, I think ask yourself, from where is this person offering this advice and for what purpose? And does it have more to do with their experience or mine? And how might it apply to my experience? Great advice. Last few fun questions. We're getting back to normal New York. If you go out for a night out, you end up in a karaoke bar. What's your go-to karaoke song? Ooh, that's a really fun one. There's a couple of songs I really love. Fever, Peggy Lee is an old one. If I'm doing more contemporary, one that's really fun that everyone joins in is No Scrubs (laughs) by TLC. But I tend to go for, I think, R&B, soul, neo-soul ones usually. All right. I'm in the process of building a playlist in Spotify for all the guests. 
Oh, that's Everyone asked fun. me. I thought, why, why don't I do it? So I'm, I'm, over the next few weeks, I'm going to be doing that. That's really fun. I like that. Um, a series, a documentary, something that you've seen of last year in lockdown that you think someone should see in, that they might not have? Oh, yeah. Well, this may be a bit controversial, but it really got me thinking. I saw it this weekend, a documentary. I believe it's on Hulu. It's called Hail Satan with a question mark. Oh. It sounds really subversive, and it is. So this organization is sort of post-Satanist cult. They just took the figure and have run with it. They're atheistic, or at least non-theistic. And the idea is that they're challenging what they see as Christian supremacy across the United States, all these policies that are changing. And you may or may not always agree with their tactics, but they see it as their fundamental American right and duty more responsibly, or I'm sorry, more correctly to say they see it as their responsibility and their duty to challenge the notion that we are one religion elevated above others and that we really are a pluralistic nation with no selected religion that we follow. And I also learned in this documentary that on our currency, where it says one nation under God or the Pledge of Allegiance, that these were actually artifacts of the Cold War era. I had taken them to be something that had been long extant in our our practice of being Americans, but actually it was introduced and reinforced during the Cold War to distinguish the United States from the atheistic communists. So to understand that there was a very specific historical reason why this was adopted and that it didn't go back to the founding of the nation and that this group sees it as their duty to seek enlightenment and knowledge, to see where science takes them, to lead with compassion and kindness. It was a total redefinition of what I thought this group stood for. And they're now getting very political and very active about challenging the erection of, you know, the Ten Commandments statues in front of courthouses or limiting access to abortion and other sorts of, um, I guess you could say, health services or what they see very much as um, a threat to our sense of agency as individual adults to make health choices. So, again, it just really shifted my perception of this group that I know I knew next to nothing about. And it got me really thinking about what it is to be an American and that they're actually fulfilling some sort of duty that we have to embrace many different cultures and religions and creeds in, in this nation. Okay. Well, put that in the Sorry, that was wordy. Well, no, was no, really that's fine. We offer a book to listeners that have good comments in the comment section on the website or on Instagram. What book should we offer? Ooh. Oh, that's so hard. Can I get more context around that? Any book that's important to you, meaningful to you, mm. you think someone else should read? I mean, who everyone has recommended it, I'm sure, but for very good reason. Viktor Frankl, Man's Search for Meaning. I think, especially the students we work with around the world, the conditions that people have been thriving in, I think it's an invitation for all of us to think about our humanity and what motivates us and how we can find a way forward, even in the darkest circumstances. And as I shared, I'm an American Jewish woman. There's something that I feel immense pride that from my community, my, you know, ancestral tribes suffering, that such wisdom could be imparted to all people there. I think there's something really beautiful in that. And I take pride in that. Yeah, it's a marvelous book. Final question. Mm. Who should we interview next? Oh, great question. Well, anyone from our team, we have several teammates. Besides Rachel, shout out to Alexis and Vikram and Raj and, and everyone who's helped contribute to our work. And let's see, who else? 
I can introduce you to a ton of people from the Summit Impact Network. There's some right. wonderful folks there. All right. Well, we're at time. So yes. we'll just wrap up. So thank you very much. I really thank appreciate you. your time. And good luck with Syzygy and with Photosar. Thank you so much for this opportunity. And just thank you for this great work celebrating changemakers. Wonderful. Thanks very much. Thanks. Bye, Abby. Okay, that's all for this week, folks. If you're enjoying the show, please either follow, download, or subscribe on your preferred podcast player. We'd also appreciate a rating and a review as it helps more people find us. And if you have a guest you think we should interview, just email us at info at theimpossiblenetwork.com or message us on Instagram at The Impossible Network. This is a Fabrica Collective production. So have a great week and we'll be back next time with another inspiring guest on The Impossible Network.